morning, church. Good to be here with you guys. Uh, as Jason said, my name's Sam Anderson. A uh, little bit of background. So I have been on staff uh, at Veritas for the last just over seven years. First six years, I was a part of our student ministry team. Um, so one of the youth pastors, and I got to be involved in a lot of the, the different things. So it was sweet this weekend um, with YouthCon. When we first started meeting as a student ministry, we didn't have any sort of like massive youth camp that we did or this youth convention that we do in the winter. Um, but that kind of developed over the years. So I think there was something like 180 kids that were gathered together yesterday down at the church building in Cedar Rapids. And it was just super cool. I got to go in there and I did a breakout on sharing the gospel and just being there and kind of seeing um, what God has done just through, not like, not through me necessarily, but just through the faithful leaders and volunteers um, and the students that God has gathered together to be a part of this church together. So it was really cool seeing some of your students, a lot of you guys from up here down there yesterday, and then also to knowing that there's a lot of people behind that with transportation and hosting. And um, it was just really sweet to kind of just step back into something that was such a part of my life for like six years. And now I'm kind of removed from that. But to be able to come alongside them and be an encouragement and enter into that, it was super cool. So if you guys uh, are not uh, familiar with our kind of method or model of student ministry, um, I would encourage you to ask some questions and um, just get to know some of the leaders that are caring for the students because we know that uh, student ministry is not like this thing that we are relegating students to, to just go be by themselves and go be crazy and like not get any sleep for the weekend. It's like, it's a bigger than that. As parents, we're the primary disciplers of our kids. And it's such a joy to have a church that is supporting us in that effort too. So um, there's my little student ministry plug that I always have a special place in my heart. And it was just really cool to see a lot of your students and leaders down there yesterday being a part of that as we came together as a big church for that gathering. So enough about that. Um, we're going to jump back into Genesis. So if you guys have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and flip to Genesis 18. Um, I really don't have a great segue talking about the joys of student ministry into what we're getting into today because uh, they're vastly different topics. But uh, who's familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Right? Yeah, lots of giggles. Those of you that giggle know where we're going. Um, so not the uh, most uplifting story. I feel like I'm kind of getting the short end of the stick. Last time I was up here, I got the Genesis 3 passage. and Like, here's another bearer of bad news. Hey, let's talk about something else that's uh, pretty wicked and pretty horrible. Let's jump right into the Bible, right? So we're going to be in Genesis 18. We're going to talk about that. And um, one thing that I think is, is helpful just to take a step back before we jump into the text this morning is just kind of seeing this theme throughout Genesis so far. We've clearly got this understanding that God has standards, right? He didn't just create a world and set it into motion and step back, but he's intimately involved and he communicates and he says, this is the expectation. This is what you are to do. This is how you're to live. This is what's best for you. And we see that time and time again, there's this failure of the meeting the expectations that God has. You have that in Eden, and then you have with Cain and Abel, and then you've got the flood, and then you've got the Tower of Babel. And it's like, we're hardly cracking the first couple pages of this story of redemption and God's unfolding of the narrative of his love for his creation. And it's, it's overwhelming. It's like, this is 
pretty terrible. We're, we're pretty terrible. Like, this is our story. We enter in this, and failure after failure, we see, like, what hope is there for people who can't get it right when you have a God who demands that the people get it right? Like, these things continue to clash, and they bump up against each other, and we're, like, hardly into this unfolding narrative, and we see that this is something that is bigger than just our own abilities to get it right. So on one hand, we can understand that there is, there's going to be no hope for a world if God is not a God with standards and justice. But on the other hand, there's no hope for sinners by ourselves if God is a God of justice. So there's got to be some way where this works together. And we've, we've got this promise back in Genesis 3 where God lays it out and he says, like, it's not going to stay like this forever. I will do something to provide you a way to be reconciled back to me. I will give you an offspring, this righteous representative who will crush sin, Satan, and death, and you will be able to come back to me and my holy righteous standards. But here we are in the middle of this story, and these things aren't fully revealed yet, and we don't know exactly how this works. And so, again, remember, as we're reading through Genesis, the original audience of this are the the people that are with Moses about to enter back into the promised land. So they're kind of looking back and recalling a lot of these things of this not-too-distant, like, past of, like, oh, yeah, we messed up there, we messed up there, we messed up there, we messed up there. And they've got this promise of entering into the promised land. And they're trying to figure out, like, what is God going to do to make it so we don't keep making the same mistakes? Last week, Jordan got into a big chunk of text in Genesis 12 through 17. We saw a lot happening all throughout there. You see that uh, there's this story of Abraham, Hagar, and Ishmael, and then God comes back. He's like, no, it's, that's not how you're going to fulfill my promise. I'm going to make you and your wife, Sarah, have a, a child, even though you're advanced in years. Your name is Abraham now. He gives them the sign of circumcision. He gives them the gift of the land of Canaan, which is also the place that the Israelites who are wandering with Moses are just about to enter back into. So they're remembering this story as they're also about to go back to this place that God has promised them. And then we get the promise of Isaac. And this promise of this child that will be born to Abraham and his wife, Sarah, and what God is going to do through him in that continuation of the blessing where God tells Abraham, not just am I going to make you a great nation and make you have a bunch of kids, but actually all of the world is going to be blessed through you and your offspring. And so we get this continuation of this promise that God made with Eve of this offspring. Now we have to Abraham and his offspring. And we're getting into the story where like God, God has promised Isaac to Abraham and Sarah. And then here we come to, remember just a little bit ago, Lot's nephew, who also was kind of in this like, well, I don't know, is it going to be through Lot that you're going to fulfill your promise? And God's like, no. And so they split off. So now Lot's nephew is living in this place called Gomorrah. And we see this understanding of what happens. And if you guys know the story, we'll kind of jump ahead and spoiler alert, spoiler alert, it's a wicked city. It's a terrible place. And it gets to the point where God sends these angels down to see what's going on in the city. And it is completely wicked, totally nothing right within the city. And God calls Lot to take his family and to leave. And Lot goes to his 
daughter's uh, fiancés, and he says, hey, we're going to leave. God's about to destroy the city, and they think God's joking, or they think uh, Lot is joking, and so they don't listen to him. And then Lot and his wife and his two daughters are the only ones that leave, but Lot's wife turns and looks back at the city as it's being destroyed, and she gets turned into a pillar of salt. And then after that, Lot's two daughters are worried that their namesake is going to be cut off, and so they conduct this plan where they're going to get their father to have them have children with them. So it's this absolutely wicked, terrible story. I am like, I'm looking at this and looking back here of like about to enter into Thanksgiving and Christmas time with family members and you have those family tensions of like, oh, things aren't the greatest. But then you look at this story and you're like, that could be a lot worse. So like, this is wicked and it's terrible. But we know that God preserves this story and we know that God specifically has Moses telling the Israelites the story as they're about to enter back into the promised land for a specific reason and we get to kind of cheat ahead and jump ahead to the New Testament. So if you're the Israelites, you're getting ready to go back into the promised land and you've got this no- another reminder that God is going to punish the wicked and he's going to protect the righteous. And then we kind of can see this looking backwards from Second Peter 2, 6 through 9. This is what it says. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So this all is unfolding. And we have this story where God, we know what God is about to do. And God even tells Abraham what he's about to do. And we're going to see this in this story. And God still continues forward. And he absolutely brings down fire and sulfur on the city and lays it to ruins so that it would be a reminder that God will deal harshly with wickedness. That wickedness deserves punishment and a righteous, just God is willing and able and going to deal with that wickedness. So this morning though, we're gonna jump into this story. We're kind of in the middle of it. And in chapter 18, um, what we're gonna focus on is this conversation that God has with Abraham. And the reason that I want us to focus on this here is that so that we can understand what Abraham is saying with God and what God responds with Abraham, that this actually gives us a better understanding of God's plan for salvation. And if we can better understand salvation, we can better understand Jesus. And when we better understand Jesus, we can better understand how we are called to be a worshiper of Jesus. So this whole story, as as wicked and terrible and awful and maybe not the most like table-friendly conversation to have over Thanksgiving dinner. This is actually something that I want us to take a step back and see, how can this increase my worship of God? How does God's righteousness and justice and mercy all work together in the provision of Jesus to actually grow my worship of him and what he's done Not just this thing in the past, but what he's doing in my life here and now. 
Because when we understand what this conversation between Abraham and God does, it's actually pulling the curtain back and giving us a peek at what God has in store for salvation. And this is where hope is founded on. This is the first spot that we see in all of scripture of what a little bit more of this plan of salvation, this righteous, holy standard and the wickedness of the people, how this works together. So let's jump into our text. Uh, We're going to be starting in chapter 18 and verse 16. So just kind of right before this, uh, Abraham is sitting there and these two, um, God comes to him in the form of three men. It's God and these two angelic-like creatures in the form of three men. God comes to them uh, and then they Abraham quick rounds up, makes a sacrifice, and they present this meat, and he has Sarah make some bread, and they they have a meal prepared um, for these three men who are God's representatives. The the Lord has come to them in this form, this two angels and God himself there in this man-like form. And he reaffirms the covenant with Abraham. He says, by this time next year, I'll come back and visit you, and you will have your son Isaac. God continues to reaffirm, like, this is my plan, and this is what I'm going to do, and this is how you're going to respond. And so right after he has that, Sarah, again, doubts this constant, like, anybody else in here struggle with doubting God and trying to, like, work that out in your life? Like, here you have God literally talking to them, like, guys, he's, like, holding their hand, like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a son. His name's going to be Isaac. And then again, Sarah's here, and she hears him from the tent, and she laughs because, again, she remembers, like, oh, yeah, I'm 90 years old. What are you going to do? Like, I'm past the way of women. How am I going to have a child? And God's like, no, you will have a child, and you do not need to doubt me in that. So right after that, this is where we're jumping in. Chapter 18, verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and the household after them to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So in here, you've got this kind of inner dialogue that God's having where he's like, should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? I'm going down to the city to destroy the wickedness, the people that are in it to see what's going on there. But he says this so that we get another picture and it's here for us to look back and for the Israelites to look back as they're entering into the promised land. It says that he's to be a teacher of righteousness and justice to the future generations. And that this is going to be an example, a teaching tool for the generations that are to come, like we just saw in Second Peter 2. Abraham's also going to be used to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth, even the sinful, wicked, pagan people. They will experience this understanding of the blessing that God has given to Abraham Because that's not just this, like, I'm going to look away from it, but it's an opportunity to be invited into the righteousness that God has. How's this going to happen? Let's continue on verse 20. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, 
I think want to just pause and do like a, a little breakdown here before we continue on. Uh, this outcry that's come to God, it's very similar to the Abel's, Abel's outcry, uh, Abel's blood crying out for justice. And it's interesting that we have this kind of theme that injustice has an audience. Specifically, that audience is God. His justice is going to be upheld and he is going to demand that justice is accounted for. Now, I think the other thing that's important is that a lot of times when we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, we just think of this like sexual perversion, this sin that is just sexual in nature. But we actually have another uh, kind of some more insight. It's not going to be on your screens here, but in Ezekiel sixteen forty three, this is what it says. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. No mention of sexual perversion. It was just a life of ease and comfort, but they didn't take care of those that were in need in their midst. And on top of that, all sorts of perverse things that they should not be doing. Maybe this sounds familiar. Maybe we look around and we can see a lot of similarities in the wickedness of our culture. And then here we have in this story that God deals with that wickedness. What's he do? He ultimately destroys the city. He rains down fire and sulfur. And we know that God's judgment is real. And we have this preserved for us as, as Moses is telling his people, like, this is here because God gave this as a teaching tool for the future generations. And we can look at that as sinners ourselves. We look around and we see like, like that kind of a city is actually our kind of a city too. We can look around and we can see how there's this, this wickedness. It's maybe not as overtly or as like very in your face as this kind of city and everything is wrong. There might be a little bit of good. You might have a really nice neighbor. You might have a really comfortable town where people take care of each other. But ultimately there's a lot of this ease and this comfort and this distraction of not honoring and glorifying God as we should. And this conversation that Abraham has with, with God that we're about to get into, he gives us a peek into what God does to save wicked people. What God does to save wicked people, he doesn't just transport them out of the, the surrounding wickedness and just magically give them this own righteousness. But there's something that God does in order to draw wicked people away from wickedness. Let's continue on in verse 22. So the men, these angelic creatures, they turned from there and they went down toward Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the, the righteous with the wicked? Suppose that there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Think this conversation that Abraham is having with God is this bigger picture. He's like praying, he's intercessing on Sodom's behalf, and he's, he's talking to them. He's affirming God's justice. He's saying, you're the judge of all. Aren't you going to do what is right? 
And it's driven by this understanding that he knows God's character. And when we're looking at this, he says, God, you're just, but is it possible that you can also have mercy? He's not just asking for God to spare the righteous and destroy the wicked, but he's saying, like, is it possible that some righteousness could spare the rest of the wicked? Could the righteousness of the few be transferred to the wicked many? Abraham knows God's a God of justice. He's seen this firsthand, and he knows that he's a God of grace and mercy. You see it over and over. He lied about his wife being his sister. He tried to take matters into his own hand and tried to not have a child with his wife, but have a child with a servant. And yet God's still with him, and he's here talking with him. Abraham's having this conversation, and he's talking with God, and he's asking if there were some way that the righteousness of some people in the city could have mercy on the, sorry, some of the righteous in the city could have mercy on the wicked many. If that kind of mercy could be extended. And God gives him an answer. God doesn't have to give him an answer, but he gives him an answer. And he says this, and the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. God says, yes. And a pretty amazing response here. It's like, yeah, if there are 50, I'll spare the whole city. And there's something else going on here that we need to understand that God is saying that a righteous minority can make a difference for a wicked majority. And the Israelites who are listening and hearing this story, they're about to enter into this place that is just full of wickedness and they're this little minority. And God's saying like, no, I'm still with you. I'm still using you. I'm still using you to be a blessing to everyone. And I'm still with you that you have a purpose, not just to run and hide away from the wickedness, but actually I am going to draw the wicked away from their wickedness to my righteousness through you. And there's something else going on here. This isn't just about like making Sodom a better place. This isn't like, God having a conversation with Abraham and Abraham just being like, God, just give me like five more years and we can, we can really change, we can really turn things around. Like Lot and I will set up, we'll start a Bible study, you know, we'll, we'll start uh, having right worship services, like we'll, we'll do all the things that'll glorify you. That's not what he's doing. It's not just about reforming Sodom, it's about sparing Sodom. Abraham's like, would you give the whole city of, the whole wicked city of Sodom mercy instead of justice because of some righteousness? And he affirms that idea that wicked people will be spared because of righteous people. And then we see that righteousness can bring mercies to sinner, mercy to sinners instead of wrath. And the question ultimately gets down to this. Abraham's talking with God and, he's, and he gets to the point and he says, how much righteousness will it take? for you to give mercy to the wicked. And because Abraham continues pressing, we get this kind of theological math story problem, right? Apparently 50, there's 50 righteous people in the city, the wicked will be spared. But then Abraham keeps leaning in and he, and he says, well, what about this? What about this? And he keeps this conversation going with God. And so we're going to read the rest of this here and we'll kind of take a step back and, and look at this again. So verse 27, Abraham answered and he said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. 
I am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him. He said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, O Lord, or O, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And then the Lord went his way. When he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Kind of an unexpected ending, right? Like he just stops at 10? Like, ah, there's got to be like 10 good people there, right? Like, no, God continues to have this conversation with him. And what we need to do is understand that God has already told Abraham that he's going to go down to destroy the city and judge the wicked. And Abraham's having this conversation with God and he affirms that, yes, he would spare it for 50 and then 45 and 40 and 30 and 20 and 10. And he's saying, but there's, there's not 50. There's not 40. There's not 30. There's not 20. There's not 10. He looks at this conversation and it just depressingly ends because Abraham knows that there is nobody in that city righteous enough for God to spare the wicked. But we have the joy and the pleasure of being this side of this story, of being this side of the New Testament and the understanding of what God did. And if we did have somebody who was righteous enough to spare the wicked, how hope-giving would that be for us? How much would we respond and worship in the understanding that the righteousness that we need has been supplied to us, and it's not a righteousness our own? This conversation that Abraham's having, it kind of says a little bit more about verse 18. Of a, He's talking with God, and he's like, how are people going to be blessed through me? How am I going to be a blessing to bless the nations? And we see that through Abraham will come the promised descendants of Eve, this offspring that will destroy sin, Satan, and death, that there will be someone who is righteous enough to save the wicked. Now, a little participation needed here. It's okay. This is a common church answer. Who is righteous enough to save the wicked? Jesus. That was weak. Come on, guys. You weren't all at YouthCon, so you all can't be that tired, right? One more time. Who is righteous enough to save the wicked? Jesus. Romans 5, 15, 17 says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 
Galatians 3, 13, 14 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Church, this is what we need to know. In Abraham's conversation with God, he's having this, this back and forth, and he's understanding, like, where will the righteousness come from? Who is righteous enough to save the wicked? And what we need to know and what we need to set our minds and our hearts on and remember not just once for what God did to save us, but what God continues to do to keep us in that saving grace. We need to remember, we need to focus, we need to set our eyes and our hearts and our minds on the fact that Jesus is righteous enough to save the wicked. Only Jesus is righteous enough to save the wicked. And it's important to know that in light of how wicked Sodom was, Abraham continued talking to God, and he said, God, is there anything that you can do to save them? Is there any righteousness enough that will save those wicked people? And God says, there is a holy standard of righteousness that I'm going to uphold, but there is nobody righteous enough in that city to save. Not 50, not 45, not 40, not 30, not 20, not 10, not 8, not 5, not 1. Even Lot in and of himself, God showed that mercy in bringing him and his family out of the city when he didn't even have to. Because then we see that Lot goes from there and the offspring of who he has daughters with his, or who he has kids with his own daughters actually become the Ammonites and the Moabites who are the people who are currently living in the promised land that the Israelites are trying to go into that they're afraid of. Lot wasn't even righteous enough. The only righteousness that we can have to save the wicked comes through Jesus. Jesus is righteous enough to save the wicked. Jesus is righteous enough to save you. Have you thought of that recently? The righteousness that God requires in salvation. It's not like Jesus a little bit saves you and then you add the cherry on top or you put some sprinkles on it or your your good works affirm that. Jesus alone has all of the righteousness that is required of us, and we add nothing to it. And this is why it's important to understand this, because we are not saved on our own righteousness. We are saved by the righteousness of a righteous representative, who is Jesus Christ. Now, sure, Most of us in this room of legal voting age took the opportunity to exercise our rights this last week and voted, right? Ultimately, what are we doing in voting? We're not like having somebody that to be our direct, like, hey, this person, I'm going to call them and I'm going to tell them exactly what to do. No, you're, you're electing a representative. You're saying, okay, their values, what they stand for, I align with that. This is somebody that I'm going to get behind. I'm going to elect them to stand in my place and to act on my behalf in legislating or in all sorts of legal proceedings or whatever that is. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if any one of those people on the ballot were somebody that I was electing to be my righteous representative before a holy and just God, not to condemn them, I'm sure there's some nice, God-fearing, loving people on it, but none of them would measure up. 
There is not one person on this earth right now who has enough righteousness to save the wicked. But the man Jesus Christ is righteous enough to save the wicked. The man Jesus Christ is righteous enough to save you and to save me. And I think one of the things that is really helpful here, you have to remember this is before the institution of the priesthood and before we have kings and before we have these like warrior representatives of these nations. There's this cool thing that God does in the Bible and he shows that Abraham is acting like a priest for Sodom. He is interceding for Sodom on their behalf to God, but he couldn't pull it off because there wasn't enough righteousness. God was answering his questions and doing the justice and saying like, yes, if there was enough righteousness in the city, I would spare them, but there's not. And I'm going to rain fire and sulfur down as a judgment on the wicked. And we see that in Hebrews 7.25, it says that Jesus is our great high priest who can pull it off, who can save to the uttermost because he lives to make intercession for us. So that Abraham prayed for the people that would have killed him and Jesus prayed for the people that did kill him. Abraham risked his life representing them. He's talking to God and he's like, oh, just, you know, don't be angry with me. But Jesus gave his life representing us. Abraham's an exemplary character We look back in all the stories and things that he did, and there's a lot to learn from that. But he couldn't save Sodom. And this story is an example of the, the long line throughout Scripture raising the question of, like, who can save us? Where will our salvation come from? What do we do? in light of God's justice. Who's going to break the curse? Is it a priest? Is it a warrior? Is it a king? Every character that we see in the Bible doesn't quite measure up. They fall short. Until Jesus. Now, just a couple chapters earlier, we had Genesis 2, right? In, in the creation narrative, what does God do? And when he makes Adam, he brings all the animals to him, right? He says, Okay, we need to find you a helper. It's not good that you're alone. All right, what about this lion? What about this dog? What about this elephant? Dolphin? Like, God continues, brings every single animal to him. Adam names them, but not a single one of the animals is found to be a suitable helper. So then what does God do? He causes a deep sleep to fall on Adam, takes out one of his ribs, and he makes a custom-fit helper for Adam that meets every single qualification to be the helper that God needs him to be, or that God needs her to be to him. And Adam wakes up and he says, whoa, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And he treasures this helper that God has created for him. How long do you think that treasuring lasts? Was it like a day? And then he's like, ah, I guess you're kind of okay. You're just Sometimes the lion's a little bit more convenient and more helpful. No, like Adam treasured Eve. And then we see the same thing. We know that we're in need of a savior. God promises the seed of Eve. And then we have all throughout scripture, we get Cain and then Noah and Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Saul, David, Solomon, Elijah, Elisha. None of them are fit to be our righteous representative. But then who enters onto the scene? Jesus. And the way that Adam looked at Eve as this fit helper for him, the one that God has provided, 
we look to Jesus, our righteous representative, and we know that he is everything that we need and that his righteousness is enough to save the wicked. And that's why when we get this image for Christ and his people in Ephesians 5 of marriage, that calls back to Genesis 2. Guys, what I want us to do is think about our worship of Jesus. And if we think about that as something that we just passively do or sometimes engage in, maybe you need to take a step back and question how your treasuring of Jesus is. Are you trying to add to his righteousness? Are you adequately seeing that as your righteous representative, that God has condemned the wicked, but he has upheld his righteousness, and he also is merciful and gracious and just? Because we need to check our heart. Because if our worship of Jesus is off, it means that our treasuring of Jesus is off. Because if we're not treasuring Jesus, we're treasuring something else in his place, and it should not be so. Are you counting on Jesus just to punch your ticket for having saved you once and then now you get to just live your life and you get to go be with God in eternity in heaven someday? Or are you considering him as your daily bread? You can't live without him. You can't exist. Your being is upheld by his very love and care and identity that he has given you. If your worship of Jesus is off, it means that you're not understanding how completely God has saved you, how wicked you are, and how righteous he is. Only Jesus is righteous enough to save the wicked. As we look back here, I hope that this story of Sodom and Gomorrah, in a way, challenges your worship and calls you to attention of, like, what is it that I am looking for? And if you already have that in Christ, great. But if you have been trying to find a righteousness outside, maybe in yourself or maybe in things that you do, it's not going to last. It's not going to be good enough. The righteousness that you need as a sinner can only be found in Jesus. And he invites you to repent and believe in him that his righteousness would be given to you. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read that earlier. God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Church, we get to do something. Uh, I, I love that we frequently take communion, that we do this as often as possible, basically every single week. And when the band comes up, um, they're going to start playing, but we're not going to enter right into uh, worship. We're going to have some time to reflect. I want you to consider where your heart's at. What has your worship of King Jesus looked like recently? Now, if there's improvements that need to be made or your worship is off, bring that to the Lord. Confess that. Ask that he would recapture your affection for him. And then when you're ready, come to the table. Partake of the the bread that represents Jesus' body that was broken for you and the juice that represents his blood that was poured out for you because only Jesus is righteous enough. And as our righteous representative, he stands before a holy and a just God on our behalf, interceding for us, giving us his grace and his mercy, at the same time upholding his justice. Because of Jesus and him alone, we get to draw near to the throne of grace and mercy of God. I'm gonna pray, and then when you're ready, church, let's come to the table. Heavenly Father, God, you are gracious and kind. Lord, you alone are righteous. God, you made a way where there was no way for us to be able to be in relationship with you. 
And it's only by the blood of Christ in which we have been reconciled, we've been bought. You have paid the debt that we owe that we could never pay. And God, I pray that we would be a people who would be known for our worship. God, that we would understand just how completely you have saved us, how wicked we are, and how hopeful we can be in Christ. God, thank you for the cross. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your justice. Thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray.